you don't grow up getting on planes and seeing the world and yada, yada, yada. And the, the breadth of your existence is like where I could drive to in a day or in a couple days. That was like as far as I went until I was like 18, 19, 20, right? So my world was like at most like Colorado, you know, or like Wyoming. So all of a sudden picking up a camera and seeing this broad, broad, big, beautiful world out there, I was like, I was just so blown away and it just opened my eyes to so much and it gave me such an appreciation for, you know, what we have in front of us. And I just felt like, man, if this can teach me all these things, then what could it teach other people? For Chris Burkhard, photography has always been more than just taking spectacular pictures. He's used his craft as a way to tell stories, to inspire people to adventure outside, and most of all, to push himself to the edge of his comfort zone. When Chris was 19 years old, he decided to forge his own career path as a surf photographer, shooting pictures of some of the world's most epic waves. Now, 15 years later, Chris is an award-winning photographer, and he's a legend in the outdoor industry. He's worked with world-class athletes and brands like Patagonia, Apple, and Toyota. He's also published several photography books, and he has over 3.7 million followers on Instagram. After spending much of his career documenting other people's lives and adventures, Chris recently decided to turn the camera on himself and share stories from his own travels. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Chris Burkhard spends his days adventuring with some of the best athletes in the world. He's caught freezing cold water waves with professional surfer Pete DeVries. He's biked in Iceland with champion mountain biker Rebecca Rush. He's hung off cliffs in Moab, surfed in Iceland, and skied near the Arctic Circle. Chris told us about some of his adventures when I interviewed him on the show back in 2017. Since then, he's continued to live a pretty wild life, and he's collected quite a few stories over the years. In February of 2022, Chris released a photographic memoir of his adventures called Wayward. Chris Burkhard, welcome back to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Yeah, I'm uh, so stoked to be chatting again. It's been a minute since we have connected and chatted. I've listened to a lot of podcasts you've done recently, and your career has taken off, and it's been fun watching you grow. And I get a lot of inspiration from you. I want to go back and talk about your book and Wayward because it was so cool. I had no idea about your career at Surfline and all the characters you worked with, like Pete DeVries, who's been on the podcast, all your cold water surfing. So there's the book Wayward, there's photographs, there's stories. It's absolutely beautiful. I like that you dip your toes in a memoir. You tell, it's not your full story, but it's a lot of your story. How did you choose which stories and which photographs to include? That's such a good question because what I what I really wanted was to kind of extrapolate some of like the the nuggets, right? The kernels of truth that I learned from some of these moments and put them into a book that was digestible. But I think just the hidden challenges in that were like coming to terms with like people care about what I have to say. Because it's so easy as a photographer and any creative just to kind of hide behind the enormous shadow that people put in front of you that you you're often documenting, right? Like the, the, the amazing athletes, you know, and, and um, the Olympians and the whatever, you know, that's, it's easy. You're just like, oh, you're just an observer, but 
But in observing, you experience things and you learn stuff. And so to write a book that was then about my experience in these places, kind of like what was happening with me and the arc of my career, I had to really come to terms with like what the heck this was going to be. And what's funny is I actually wrote 140,000 words, a real proper memoir. And then we stripped it down to about 40,000 or 30,000 words because I also kind of just, there's certain experiences that were like so sacred and so special and so unique that I was like, I'm going to save this for another book in five years. I like that in this book, you share a lot of uh, the things that happen when shit hits the fan. Yeah, and when a lot hits the go fan. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I find that those make the best stories. And I think it's like Yvonne Chouinard who said, it's not an adventure until something goes wrong. The one that sticks out to me, probably told a million times, but I think it's such like a great story because like everybody can just picture this, but the Russian jail cell. Yeah, it's like the token like... um oh yeah, like, you know, you're, you're sitting around and everybody shares a story and you're like, oh, I had this one moment. But you know, what's interesting about it is that, um, and I'll just briefly go over it, but is that what I, is more like what I learned from it, which actually, interestingly enough, took years. It took years to fully process, digest, actually kind of, you know, uh, unpack. That's a very popular podcast word. Um, unpack that story. Um, <laughs> I and, try and, not to use that word. Yeah, and, and honestly, it was like something I had to like to like figure out because I just spent a lot of time being mad about it, being angry, being pissed off, you know. And I was traveling to Vladivostok, Russia. I had uh, at a certain this certain point in my life, I had kind of realized that what I wanted to do is really explore the cold and more remote locations on earth to surf and to shoot and to, to photograph. And I fell in love and I, I jumped in headfirst. Like it's all I wanted to do. I was over going to Australia and Costa Rica, and Nicaragua and, and the Maldives and whatever. I was like, all I want to do is tell stories from places that hadn't been seen. And so we, we jumped in and in doing so, I rushed the process, I rushed the process of of everything, you know, of like learning the culture, respecting them, learning what this place is about, who goes there, who lives there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing I didn't rush was the visa process. I actually did that very well. And I did it for the whole group. And upon arriving there in Vladivostok, flying through Korea, et cetera, et cetera, you know, every single person from our crew got, you know, patted down and and talked and then, and then they got to go through customs. And then it came to me and I was sitting there having this very nonverbal communication with the lady at the customs office. And she was just pointing to my passport, shaking her head. And I realized upon looking more closely than I had before that my entry date was two days off and that I was absolutely screwed. And what ensued was a six hour interrogation. And then they took me and they put me in a jail cell, like a holding cell, with bars in the windows, lock, you know, no door handle, locking the door with like a toilet in the floor and just like a, a bed chained to the ground. Um, and Vladivostok is one of Russia's like major military bases, right? Like this is a place that's no stranger to having, um, you know, war camps and other things like that. And uh, it was really terrifying. You know, I, I was thrown in this cell I had all my belongings with me, um, basically had a guard at the door the whole time. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make any like, you know, James Bond references here, but literally his name was Igor and he had one eye, I swear to God. And, you know, it was the first time in my life where I had all my rights stripped from me and everything taken from me. And I called the embassy and they basically were like, well, the only way we can get you out is if they, if there's cruel and unusual punishment, if they don't feed you or they don't give you water or whatever. And I was like, okay. And then 
in making that call, they made a call and like at midnight, you know, I hadn't eaten in like 24 hours. I get a knock on my door. I get taken down to this like room. That's like this, like military, like stainless steel kitchen thing and huge long table made for like a hundred people. And they're just like a tiny two cups. And um, I go down there and I eat one cup. That's like soup and one cup. That's like cucumbers or whatever. Um, and mayonnaise. And I, I just ate it because Igor was like standing behind me breathing. <laughs> and uh, I went back to my my cell and I just had like full diarrhea the rest of the night. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But oddly enough, oddly enough, the one person that I had met from church of all places, a friend of my mom's was like, oh yeah, I had a Russian exchange student for years. Good friend. There's these two words you need to know. You need to know this word and you know this word. And this word means how to, like, where's the bathroom, please. And I remember knocking on the door because my, my toilet wasn't working. It was a toilet in the ground and like the, the hose to kind of flush things down wasn't working. And um, I was knocking on the door, Igor comes and I'm like trying to tell him, like, I'm like, I feel like, like shit, you know, and I'm not great. And, um, and I'm like, I, and I remember telling him, like, Coach, you please move or something like that. And he looked at me. And I'll never forget that because, like, in that moment that he looked at me, I was like, what I just told him was not what I meant to ask. Um, and he looked at me and he kind of, like, took, cocked his head. And I was like, never mind. I'm good. All good. No worries. Like, just going to go to bed, whatever. Um, and it turns out I didn't even realize this till later on, actually, like, multiple days later. Cause I got, I got the next day I got deported to Korea and I had to stay there for a day. And then I came back to Russia a couple days later and I was able to go through the process again and finally get into the country. But my, my wife called me like urgently and she's like, whatever you do, don't say the words, don't say those words that, that what's her name told you. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And my mom's friend, this classic, classic lady, I love her. Um, you know, she was playing a prank on me. She thought I'd be like in some hotel or in some place being like, oh, where's the bathroom? When really I was like, I need an enema. <laughs> and so I don't think that she envisioned I'd be telling my Russian guard where I was, you know, effectively imprisoned for the day that I needed an enema. I mean, I could only imagine what he was thinking. So it was, <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty epic. It was, it was going. But what I learned from the whole experience was I spent so much time being angry and being upset. And just being pissed off, being like, well, no, it's this, it's the visa lady's fault. And it's this fault. But, you know, but the, the thing I, I learned is like, you know, this process of traveling where we dream and we, we wax poetically about allowing travel to like make us become a better person doesn't, it doesn't really happen um, while you're out there on the trip. It happens before you leave your front door. Like the process of becoming a better person through travel it happens as you study these cultures, as you prepare yourself to go to these places, as you as you give the respect that they deserve, and as you in some way prepare your mind, body, and spirit to go and, and take on a trip like this. And I, I can say full well that I wasn't prepared. And um, had I been prepared, I would have I would have been more cognizant to what I was getting myself into. And um, and I just think that it's so easy to point the finger when really it's like you should think about all the all the reasons why maybe you know you weren't really ready. I love Chris's point here. The real work of travel starts way before you leave your front door. I can definitely relate. Whenever I'm planning a trip, I get giddy about the possibilities ahead of me. Chris has learned a lot about himself as he's traveled the world. But growing up, he didn't really leave home, except for the occasional family road trip. 
It wasn't until he picked up a camera in his late teens that Chris's horizons expanded. Photography opened up his world, and taking pictures helped him sink into moments as they happened in real time. In fact, Chris remembers images better than anything else. What's one of the stories that you think might get overlooked that you really liked writing in the book? I literally can't even remember what I wrote in the book. It was just like, I wrote down so much and it's almost like I wrote it down so that I can remember it because I have a terrible memory. I'm like the worst at remembering names and I'm great at remembering faces and I'm amazing at remembering photographs. I'm like, oh, that photo, I know that photo was shot in, you know, so-and-so. Like even the photo behind you, I'm like trying to identify if that's either West Australia or like San Diego or like- That's San Diego, yeah, La Jolla Shores yeah. by like some surfer. I love it. So like, I'm always like, I, I identify that. But when it comes to stories, it's hard because it's like, it has to really have registered an emotion for me to like remember it. And there are so many of them, you know, there's, there's losing all my camera gear in Chile, like the first three years of my career and going home with, you know, pouring water out of my lenses being like, my career is over. I literally had to leave the trip early because I had nothing to shoot on and then claiming insurance and getting some of my gear back, but then also being uninsurable for like the foreseeable future because I was such a liability, right? And, and just like stories like that, like, you know, hiring this drunk boat captain in Chile to go take us out to this wave, things like that, where like I, most of them, they're so funny because they're so avoidable and they seem so obvious. But when you take the circumstance and you take a kid who just hadn't seen the world, hadn't known what was out there and you thrust him into these opportunities and they're just so eager to make the most of themselves, like this is what happens. You, you, you become wayward and you, you, you try to take a very unconventional path to get to your goal. And I think that's kind of what the book is about. But I think what I really try to address is more of the inner turmoil of like wanting the most out of a career and then trying to like explore that and then just being beaten down by the world and being beaten down by the realities of the world. I mean, you know, there was a period of time where I felt so disenchanted by surf photography and just being like, well, I'm, what, do you, what am I doing? I'm just traveling around the world, documenting people riding waves. Like it seems so like, I don't know, just like frivolous. And I remember going to Nicaragua to document at the time La Chureca, which was like one of the big seven, you know, obscenities of the world, this huge trash dump where thousands of people lived and there was tons of incest and prostitution among young kids. And I was photographing there and it absolutely just absolutely tore me apart. Like I just, I could not hang. I could not handle it. I felt too emotional and too disturbed. And because of that, I almost felt like, uh, in some way, like, what's wrong with me? Like, this is the greater, the greater good. Like, this is you fighting for the greater fight. But knowing myself and coming to terms with like what I was capable of, and I had to come to terms with the fact that like, that's not something that I can do in a way that's going to really um, tell the story in a meaningful way, because I can't disassociate that much. I wasn't given that skill set. And um, I kind of had to come to terms, like a, almost like a rebirth of the fact that like, well, I glorify the beauty of this world in the hopes that people will go out and see that beauty and that they will spend time in that beauty and, and protect it and vote for it and, and advocate for it and, and be healed by it. And I think that coming to terms with that was like a big part of my personal journey, right? But that happens throughout our career. You know, we, we, we question things, we, we go down, 
you know, random paths we learn about ourselves. And I, I didn't always have it figured out. And I still don't. I question it every day. It takes courage to admit when something is beyond our ability. But when you're pursuing a wild idea, you have to push against the boundaries of your comfort zone. When we come back, Chris talks about accepting discomfort and honing his artistic process. He also talks about his approach to imposter syndrome, which is something most creatives have experienced. In 2016, Chris gave a TED Talk called The Joy of Surfing in Ice-Cold Water. It was about surfing in freezing temperatures and taking photos during a blizzard. Underneath the surface of his lecture, his message was that pursuing wild ideas can be uncomfortable, but sometimes there's magic and discomfort. So I just want to ask you this one thing, like, it seems like, you know, you did this TED talk and a lot of what you talked about before was, you know, why you need to be uncomfortable mm. to pursue mm. this wild idea. Yeah, totally. And now it almost seems like you're comfortable being uncomfortable. I, you know, it's so funny. Me, my wife and I were, were walking on the beach on Valentine's Day and this was like our exact subject. And I think it's funny because it's... Uh, Oftentimes people just see it as like, oh yeah, you know, typical male, you know, creative needs to be a masochist to like feel anything. And I, and I don't, I don't think it's that. I think it's so much deeper than that. I feel like in many ways it's about creating space for change to occur, to become something better, to become something new. And, and to create that space, you have to, you have to pry, you know, you have to work, you have to like open up something. Sometimes that's really challenging. Oh, I heard this phrase in in yoga this morning um of all things and i was like it really stuck with me because it kind of sums it up it's like you know people always say like oh enjoy the journey enjoy the journey what if there's no end of the journey and then all you have is the work you better learn to enjoy the work and so i've i've tried to adopt that in any every way that i can like life is a constant process of of refining what you know and what you love and to even for a second think that you just have it figured out oh my gosh like that's literally like the death of any creativity for me you know we we oftentimes talk about this imposter syndrome and i crave that i crave the idea that i i don't know what i'm doing and i i want to learn from other people there is no end in sight as a photographer and a creative person, even too. like where you're going to all of a sudden shoot the image. And then once you've done it, you've done it and you're done. You know, like I think that um, if there's a question that I, I get apprehensive about the most, it's when somebody says, so where, what do you want to be doing in five years? What is Chris Burkhardt going to look like in 10 years? When somebody asks me that, I'm just like, no, like I just shudder. I'm like, I love what I'm doing right now. Like even this, like, I love this. The fact that someone even cares enough to hear what I have to say is so special. So I'm like, why don't I just enjoy this and not be so concerned with the five, 10, 20 years out scenario and just kind of focus on like, what's this next three months going to look like? What's this year going to, what do you, what goals do I have for this year outside of work? And that's been really helpful. I've really been able to to shift in that way. How do you decide what you react to and you say yes to versus like what you plan and go seek out? Because that's that's a really hard balance 
for a creative. You got to make money. You got to pay the bills. You now have like an overhead with employees. You have a big business. You're not Chris, the surf photographer living out of his van. Okay. Eating Ritz crackers and salami anymore. Like you've got two kids, a wife and what, seven employees. So I guess when I'm looking at my year, a big part of it is like, okay, yes, I'm going to have the branded partnerships, the commercial work, the this and that, um, that stuff is, is going to be coming towards me. But then throughout the year, I'm thinking about usually a couple things. What is my environmental or social initiative? Like who am I partnering with this year to support, promote? What is the personal project that I'm going to be working on? What is like the expedition, the trip that is going to, I guess, feed my, you know, being. And then beyond that, I'm looking at all of the commercial projects that come up, like the stuff I do for brands. And I'm trying to evaluate each one being like, is this something that I love? And if I love it and I'm passionate about it, then I'm going to give everything to it. I'm going to make sure it's great. If I'm not so in love with the idea, then why am I doing it? Am I fearful of not making enough money because I have people I need to support? Am I doing it because I I feel like I'm not relevant and I need my name to try to be bolstered up? I try to look at these things from a, a deeper, more personal perspective that is not just like, when you write this out on paper, this looks like a good idea. Why would you say no? I'm trying to understand why I want that. And I think monetarily, I have to really disassociate from the money value because it would only make sense from a human survival perspective to take every single job you can and make as much money as you can. But that's not really the objective of the business model. The business model for me is to be as happy as I can whilst also supporting all these people that I work with. So that's been a big part of how I've operated and I've had to like really learn to do that. I read a book by um, Greg McKeown called Essentialism, where he, you know, he talks about like, you say no to say yes, right? By saying no, you're saying yes to what you want. And that was like a huge eye opener for me. I'm like, ah, so I've just been saying yes this whole time to everything. And uh, this is my problem. I'm a consummate like worker, right? Like I'm, you know, self-professed workaholic. And I just come from that background of like working really hard, blue collar family, trying to make it work. So um, this has been an eye opener and I've been trying to shift the way I I do things. I loved listening to you talk about this because I come from a workaholic family, like massive workaholic. We also come from a a family that's addicted to being busy. Mm, Like busy is placed on a pedestal. And I've like fought that almost to the point where now if I have like too many projects, I like, I like physically get sick. Yeah. Yeah. I know people listening to this podcast, you're like adventure photographer, adventure journalist, dream job. In so many ways, <laughs> it is the absolute dream job, but you will bust your ass harder than ever to make it happen. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've had projects where I've literally, literally pulled hair off of my head because I was like losing my hair because of lack of sleep and lack of of nutrition, right. And things like that. Like it's, it takes an absolute toll on the family, on all these things. So, and, and, you know, here's the thing that's challenging and you can relate to this to your point, Shelby is like, there's no school that you go to, to be like, Oh, you want to be a good architect? Well, you do this and then you do this and you work for a firm. And then, you know, when you're like, yeah, you want to be an adventure photographer. Well, there's no recipe. There's no uh, direct like access point. You're just going to like absolutely struggle, try to figure it out as you go, make a ton of mistakes along the way. And then maybe at some point you'll learn something and, and, and you might like actually 
you know, cultivate a healthy relationship with it. Cause it's so easy in your line of work and my line of work to be, have an unhealthy relationship with the job because when it is so much of like your own seed of passion, you just want to nurture it and you can nurture it to death in some way. And I've seen it burn a lot of people out where like, oh yeah, that guy who was like the super famous, amazing world-class photographer who did this. Now he does real estate because he can't stand to pick up a camera because of what it means to him, you know? Even if you're in love with your work, even if every cell in your body comes alive when you do it, that doesn't necessarily make your job easy. The stressful moments in Chris's career have taught him that he needs to check in with himself. He prays, he does yoga, and he gets a lot of insights from conversations with his wife. These moments of self-reflection have also allowed him to pursue things simply because he likes them. For example, during his travels, Chris fell in love with Iceland. The beauty, the culture, all of it. He now has an apartment there that he uses as a home base for adventures with his family. So let's talk about Iceland. Like, why that place? Because in your book, you said when you went there, you're like, you're like, it felt like home instantly, but it was just so crazy wild. I think that um, it's so weird. I mean, again, like a random, you know, Mexican kid from California growing up and, and uh, <laughs> like, not in cold weather. And then all of a sudden falling in love with like this, this country that's like 7,000 miles away seems really odd. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, but are you Mexican? I am. Did yeah. I my last this? name, my last name was Gallegos. That was that. So I'm, I'm like over 50%. And then the other wow. percentage is like, um, Ashkenazi Jew and native American. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird mix, but, um, maybe that's why you're so good at connecting with so many different types of people. So, so what are the people of Iceland? Like, like what attracts you to Iceland? That's, um, that's the funniest thing is that they have this saying called theta, theta, which is like, it means like, it'll all work out. And it's basically like the way that many of them live, because if you think about it, they live in this very, very volatile country where nearly their entire population at times throughout the last couple thousand years has been wiped out by volcanoes and, and, you know, uh, and, and smoke and ash and huge waves and et cetera, et cetera. Like it's, they can't plan for a wedding like six months down the road. They don't know if it's going to be snowing or raining or whatever. So they truly live in the moment. Like they live in the moment. I love that. I love the fact that there's this people that, you know, one of their, it's, it's, I don't, I don't mean to like rag on anybody, but one of their worst qualities is, is making long-term um, solutions to problems, right? They often think in like short-term solution, short-term solution. Um, but it's like so beautiful. It's the coolest thing because they're just always thinking about like, okay, well, this is what we need to fix. Let's do it right now. The weather's good. Let's get on it. And um, I love that. And I, and I also um, appreciate so much the storytelling tradition, sagas, right? They use sagas as a way to translate their history, their stories, the the purpose of why the people have done things and um, this very imaginative culture. And that imagination has translated into beautiful films and music and all of these things that they've been able to kind of like use as tools to teach and to educate and and I love the music and I like the food and the landscape is beautiful, but it, it, it's the people that, you know, have, have drawn me in more than anything, I would say. Through 
there's so many people who want to be photographers mm. and um I think in your book you wrote there's like 30 professional surf photographers that actually make a living as a surf photographer. Well, there there was now none. I think the key thing was like back in the day, which was like, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, there were magazines that would pay your retainer and there were photographers that did that for a living. And so I think that's awesome and rad and something that um, that I absolutely like look look back at as like such a special period of time um but i think that yeah nowadays it's 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 non-existent but in terms of the question which is like there's a lot of people who want to be a photographer and and i'm guessing that the other part of that question because i kind of cut you off was like where do they go what do they do how do they start is that kind just of one piece of advice like yeah. what's the what's the common advice that you yeah. just keep giving photographers like, i think that's that, a yeah it's really easy i think the only thing is like we constantly are trying to tell ourselves photographers that we need to be good at everything that in order to, to deliver to a client or to get them something they need we need to be good at portraits and landscapes and action and yada 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 when really you're often hired because of your strengths and because of your skill sets you're really good at x or you're really good at y um, and i think that being a specialist is often overlooked as a very very good skill set and that's what i've really honed my craft on is like being a specialist being great at something and that has paid off and doesn't mean you can't learn other traits, but that's where I felt like I developed my greatest skills and, and skill sets. So yeah, I mean, that's what I would, that's what I'd always urge people to do. When we talked last time, you gave advice on, on how others could live out their wild ideas. How has your advice on living wildly changed? Yeah, I was trying to think about what I said last time, but I think, I think if anything, like, you know, wildness means something so different to everybody. And, and if anything, the, like my wife said this to me the other day, she's like, you should only do the things that make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Like the things that, the things that like truly get you excited. Like you need to have one of those things throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month that you dedicate yourself to. Like, I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Like, what is it? And, and I, and I, I said this in another podcast, um, like a couple weeks ago, I was like, I love the idea of being of the fake it till you make it. Like I fake it till I make it every day. I fake it every single day. Like I don't know what I'm doing. I love the concept of being thrust into a situation where I've just got to like make it up as I go. Um, because, because that's truly what we're doing. Like we're just figuring it out and um, being pushed into a situation at times willingly and or unwillingly where you maybe feel slightly unprepared or whenever it's so validating to see yourself rise to the occasion. And so to me, like, that's what it means to live wildly. It also means to live very bravely. And I would say, if anything, those two words should be synonymous. They should be one. And I, and I really like to think of my life as one that maybe more than anything was lived bravely. In what ways are you inspired to live more bravely? What makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up? How do you cultivate the confidence you need to go after your wild ideas? If you're listening to this, you're brave and you can pursue the things that you love, even if no one else has done them before. When you take on a new adventure, you give yourself an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to rack up some wild stories. For Chris, living wildly has involved a few literal, sometimes freezing cold plunges into the unknown. In the process, he's learned to embrace uncertainty and capture the now. 
Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. I always love chatting with you and hearing your insights on your life and your journey. If you want to learn more about Chris Burkhard, you can follow him on Instagram at Chris Burkhard. You can also check out his website, ChrisBurkhardStudio.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-B-U-R-K-A-R-D Studio.com. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow this show, when you rate it, and when you take time to review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.